Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Pedro Sousa. Pedro is a senior lecturer in economics and finance at Queen Mary University of London. Pedro, welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to have you. Today, we're going to talk about your research on body-worn cameras for police. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yes, of course, Jennifer. So uh, I'm interested in social networks in a kind of in a very wide sense. So I'm interested like on, on about how human interactions shape economic outcomes. And in essence, kind of the cameras are not specifically a network paper, but it's also an intervention that shapes how police officers and the citizens interact. So that's how we kind of became interested in in how the cameras would affect the the police-citizen interactions. And it happened that it was in the right place, the right time, and I had the right implementation partners. And I happened to have this amazing team of co-authors by Danielle Barboza, Katerina Soto, and Timo Fetzer. And we all pulled that together. Um, So that's how it came to be. It came through an an angle of social networks. And and through that, I became interested in, in the police activity and being in the right place, the right team, the right partners to uh, uh, implement that project. Awesome. So your paper is titled De-Escalation Technology, the Impact of Body-Worn Cameras on Citizen Police Interactions. As you mentioned, it's co-authored with Danielle Barbosa, Tamo Fetzer, and Katarita Soto. And in this paper, you run a large randomized trial of body-worn cameras with police officers in the state of Santa Catarina, Brazil. So tell us a bit about the context there. What are crime rates like and what are police community relations like in that state? Should I first say that that Santa Catarina is a beautiful place. It has <laughs> <Yes>. an amazing, <laughs> amazing place to visit. And it has uh, uh, you know amazing beach and amazing nature. And it's an amazing hike. So if you're a fan of kind of being outdoors, that's a place to go. But Santa Catarina, it's a relatively wealthy state in Brazil, in a middle-income country such as Brazil. It's relatively safe as compared to a relatively unsafe country. And the crime rates in in Santa Catarina is still like three times that of the U.S. and five times that of the U.K. And with a very substantial within-state heterogeneity. So different places in Santa Catarina are quite different in terms of kind of policing challenges and the crime rate. So you're going to get some places that are like super, super safe and some places uh, that are not. It's a relatively small state, but in a huge country. So it still has kind of 1 million inhabitants. It's comparable to the whole population of Portugal or Israel. It's a relatively geographically small state, but in a, in a big country. So uh, if you take the state east to west, it's almost the distance between Edinburgh and London, a bit less than perhaps Paris to Milan, but it, it's still quite, quite large. So it's a hugely heterogeneous population as well. And uh, the community police relations, as compared to Brazil, are generally okay, certainly not as bad as in other states like Rio, but there is still, you know, from from other research that we've done, we've still observed that 50% of of the inhabitants, they feared walking around in their municipalities, fearing being victims of crime. Uh, 40% of our respondents still felt that the police was corrupt. And 20% didn't trust the police at all. So I wouldn't characterize it as a good relation with the police. I would characterize it as perhaps better than average in Brazil, but with substantial policing challenges that remain. Okay. So when you and your team first started talking with policymakers about this experiment and talked with them about 
you know, why they were considering implementing body-worn cameras, what were the main goals on the policy side? Were they primarily focused on police use of force, which we typically talk about with respect to body-worn cameras in the U.S., or was it something else in Brazil? Sure. So uh, I don't think there was a single goal. I think there was a multiple kind of interests that they had in, in implementing this project. You know, I, I remember getting there and speaking to the police officers for the first time, you know, the high-ranking police officers, and I was telling them, like, look, uh, to, kind of to understand whether it works or not, we should randomize. And they interrupted me and said, no, 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 we already know we need to randomize to know whether it works <laughs> or it doesn't. And I kind of, I fell in love. I was like, okay, that's amazing. the right place. So that's where, <laughs> it's, it's the it's dream. It's very often that you interact with in, in that way, right? So yeah. and that you get the buy-in to randomize. So they had a genuine interest in knowing whether cameras worked or it didn't work. In principle, I think they had the right motivation, which was to kind of make efficient use of public money. You know, they want to invest and they want to know whether that investment is worth it. So uh, in terms of kind of the dimensions that they were looking for, of course, they were looking at use of force as well, but they often relayed the idea that the cameras were a protective device. And that's also true that, you know, being a police officer can be dangerous, drop, and having a camera is also a protective device to protect the police officers. And, and that was a big part of also what we they had in mind by implementing the cameras. They had already lined up where they were at, at the beginning of the discussions. They, they were planning to deploy the cameras in large scale. So, and eventually it did happen. So they had uh, 2000 cameras across all the state. So our project was in a way testing whether this large scale intervention would have any prospect of actually working and delivering the results that they, they were expecting. So I guess it was kind of a, a, this moment in time where they were genuinely interested in whether it works, along with a potential scale-up, uh, and it actually did inform the scale-up, uh, so it did happen in the end of the day. Okay, so some combination of trying to protect citizens and trying to protect the police from violence. And so what are the various ways we might expect you know, cops wearing a camera <laughs> to affect those outcomes? What are the mechanisms here that we should have in mind? Sure. So uh, I think when, when the camera the camera is there, a number of things can change. But the two main avenues we kind of already touched on, violence and use of force, I would rather think it as a, an equilibrium outcome rather than one-sided outcome. But it's, it's both officers complying with the protocol for use of force. We have to define a little bit what's excessive use of force relative to the protocol, which is yet another dimension to discuss. And there is the other side, which is citizens internalizing that kind of whatever actions that they take are going to more likely have repercussions. These actions can be against or not against the police officers. Because it's an equilibrium outcome, it's not very easy to disentangle whether it's coming from one side or or another. We have some indication. And to be completely frank, I think the two sides are, uh, the two aspects are are relevant. And I'm pretty sure that the police side of reducing uh, use of force is, is very, very relevant, of course. But also there are a number of other uh, potential kind of channels and mechanisms through which kind of introducing a camera may change how that interaction unfolds. So, for example, the cameras increase the capacity to recover evidence, let it be directly because, of course, the camera records what happened, but also indirectly as the camera kind of forces the police officers to kind of fill the forms properly and make sure that whatever documentation and pictures and whatever evidence is gathered in the right way from the scene where that crime happened. 
It also has the potential to, and in the paper we look at those effects and we find no effects, but it would have the potential for, say, affect efficiency measures. Kind of offices could respond more quickly because they have the cameras. They cannot just slack off. They have to respond to some call. There could be the potential also to the patrol routes being endogenously changed. Say that, you know, you have a camera now. I want to patrol the easy parts of the city. We don't find any any evidence of that, but it, it could change uh, way more than that just specific interaction. Uh, and of course, kind of the, the there is a big question here on whether the the videos that are recorded, and the evidence that more generally is recorded from the crime scene, uh, what is the that effect on the criminal justice system afterwards? So there is a, a number of changes that are happening. We try our best to map them. I think there is quite a bit of research yet to be done. Although I do think that our results are are quite compelling in understanding a lot that has been documented already from from that experience. Yeah, so expecting consequences if you are misbehaving either on the police or citizen side requires kind of a couple steps here, right? So you've got like this objective footage (laughs) or like an objective third party is like always watching and recording what you do. And then as economists will sort of the next step we would expect then is that there are consequences if you don't do what you said you did or don't do what you were supposed to do. And so I guess this leads to a question of exactly how these are implemented and used in the police departments you're working with. I know this is a big topic of conversation, like the the actual implementation in in the U.S. context. Are there people reviewing the footage from body-worn cameras in these departments or what kinds of consequences are the the police expecting? Do you have a sense of that? So that's that's a very, very important question. So I I used to say that the cameras, they are not a monitoring device. They just open a window for someone else at some other point in time in some other location to monitor that interaction. So that the expectation that someone else might observe that interaction, and that's the key element here. And whether that person would do something with that recording should it need to be done, right? And uh, this is a key a key element. And in our case, we knew that the uh, uh, the recordings, they were accessed by the higher instances in the police. So if there was a complaint against a certain police officer, they would be able to map that into an actual dispatch and look whether the recording took place or didn't. And the criminal justice system had access as well to use it as proofs, irrespective of whether the action was perpetrated by the police officer or not, or against the police officer, but it could be used as evidence. And finally, it did happen that the police units that had the cameras installed, they were using, randomly reviewing some of the videos and using them for training, for internal training. So they would review in daily sessions, sometimes a little bit less than daily, but they would review with the police officers in a very open spirit with the police officers to say what did go right, what didn't go right, or should be fixed in, in how you engage with the citizens and so on. So there was this training element here that the, the recordings kind of subsidized quite a bit of the training of the police officers. Of course, this was kind of also specific to some police officers and, and some commanders that decided to make use of the, the recordings in that way. It's also a a unique kind of way of using uh, the the video recordings that I would hope that other police departments could also uh, make use of. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so before your paper, what had we known about the effects of police body-worn cameras? So we knew that that body-worn cameras didn't have much effect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so there were a number of experiments in the developed world. So we had Rialto in California, Birmingham in the UK. These experiments had not found much effects. From a number of conversations, I knew also that these studies were trickling down to justify why, why cameras should not be adopted. So it was fitting into the policy debate. We were not happy with the status of the literature due to a number of reasons. One is kind of the context in which these cameras were implemented. And of course, there are policing challenges everywhere, but they are not so comparable with the policing challenges in a high crime scene like Brazil. And we are also not comfortable with the research design, where we thought that for a number of reasons, the research designs would not be able to capture the true effects of the camera. So, for example, we, we thought that the previous studies did not account properly for contamination. So if you were to compare treated and control groups, for example, treated and control officers, you have to take into account that, well, they are in dispatch groups together. So if you and I are in the same dispatch group and you have a camera, I'm a control officer, but of course I'm going to change my behavior because you have the camera as well. So we need to be able to observe that interaction and who composes the dispatch group in order to tease out what, what are the true effects by comparing treatment and control, but defining a control group that is not affected even indirectly by the uh, camera implementation itself. Yeah. And just to clarify here, these are all RCTs for the most part, which is sort of amazing. So what you're talking about with sort of confounded effect isn't the standard issue we have where, you know, finding a comparison group is hard. These are, these were all randomized trials, but there are these sort of these questions about the extent to which the treatment effects spilled over to the control group and then whether that could bias things towards zero. Exactly. One challenge is, is exactly as you put it very rightly. So it's finding the comparison group. But another issue is comparing what to what. We aimed at comparing the outcomes at the level in which the interaction unfolds. That's the dispatch. You cannot get more granular than that. So while previous papers, they were comparing the outcomes, say, at the officer level or at the shift level, of course, these can potentially manifest uh, the, the treatment effects, but these are all indirect observations as opposed to looking at the data that most closely uh, records how officers and citizens interact, which is the dispatch level. By looking at that granularity of data, we can also do a number of things. So we can control for, say, time variation. We can control for a number of kind of exogenous factors that make our, make our lives a bit easier in the statistical sense because we get more, more power to identify the treatment effects. Yeah. So I do want to give all of these other researchers the credit they deserve for running all these impressive RCTs. I mean, you know, this is a, a rare space in the criminal justice policy landscape where we actually have a bunch of RCTs on a specific type of intervention which I mean, from a research perspective is just amazing. And as you're pointing out, you know, even a place where we have at least a, over a dozen RCTs um, in various cities. So there really have been a bunch in the US and the UK, randomizing at different levels, randomizing at across different officers or across different shifts. And each of those derandomization, you know, levels is trying to avoid certain types of spillovers. And they're looking at citizen complaints and they're looking at use of force rates and yeah, just across the board, it's just like null effect, null effect, null effect, null effect, which has been really interesting 
And so, you know, as we we continue talking about your paper, you're going to find something very different. And I think you make a compelling case that you're measuring the effects in a cleaner way. But there is also this, you know, when we talk about kind of why this is hard, (laughs) all of those researchers also knew that there was the potential for spillovers. But I think a lot of times it's difficult to get the level of buy-in that it sounds like you all had in Santa Catarina and maybe just differences in data access. I don't know. What are, what do you think? Like, as you guys were approaching this question and you had all these other RCTs in mind and you're saying, you know, I'm just not quite convinced that this is telling us what the causal effect of body-worn cameras are, especially in a context like ours. What were the main challenges that you felt like you had to overcome? Is it mostly about like randomizing at the right level were you really focused on getting better data than the other researchers had? What were the hurdles there? Yeah, no, of course. So, I mean, the previous studies, they, they were groundbreaking in, and, mm-hmm. and trying to study this, this question. And, and there are multiple constraints. Randomizing something with the police is no easy, you know, easy <laughs> Yeah. And getting them to randomize in a way that you can properly map out these, these, these effects, uh, uh, even less. We did have a lot of buy-in, especially at this beginning of this period, then it changed over time a little bit. But for the implementation of this project, we did have a lot of buy-in. And we had multiple and multiple rounds of conversation. I went down there to Santa Catarina, I don't know how many times, but uh, like <laughs> something between I don't know, seven or 10 times to refine and refine an implementation plan such that it would be feasible, such that it would, would identify the treatment effects that we would be able to comply with target or ideal analysis and, and control for spillovers and so on and so forth, given the full constraints that they have in terms of cover operations. So I couldn't devise an implementation plan that would, of course, should suit their uh, modus operandi in a way. And it ended, it ended up being the simple implementation plan where we would randomize across um, officers and, and days. Ideally, we would randomize whether certain dispatches are treated or not, but that's not feasible. And the closest that we could get from that is the combination of randomization across offices and days. That allows us to get as close as possible to the randomization across across dispatches and to have a very good data access that would allow us to map. So for us, the unit of treatment, as I said, is the dispatch, but the, the, we considered dispatches being treated if at least one police officer was wearing a camera, irrespective of who that officer is, and then we later look at heterogeneity. Uh, for example, we find that if junior officers are, are wearing the camera, then compliance is higher for a number of reasons that we think. For example, the junior officers are more likely to adjust to a new technology. Their career concerns is all, all very consistent with that. So there was this two sides. So I think there was this buy-in from the police, which was very good. They were kind of very dedicated police officers to try to kind of really find out the effects of the camera and willing to fully do what they could do to provide an environment that was as suitable as possible for a kind of a quality research and to open up the doors in terms of data. We do have some very granular data. We don't have any data that identifies any single individual. So we don't observe the videos themselves. We don't observe the names of any of the victims, and we don't observe the names of the police officers. But apart from these very reasonable concern about individual privacy, we pretty much got data for what we requested initially. Uh, So I think it was a combination of the two things. Uh, It was the treatment design, the buy-in, and the quality of the data that allowed us to 
you know, overcome these hurdles that potentially other papers have faced. Yeah. And so you worked with several police departments in Santa Catarina to implement this big RCT. So tell us a little bit more of the story here. I think it's always fascinating to people exactly how these RCTs come about. So how did the individual police departments get involved? Tell us a little bit more about kind of what those conversations were like and how this all developed. Sure. So the police in Brazil, they are organized at the state level. So we got in touch with the central command for the state level police. And that happened through our implementation partner, Igarapé Institute. They were, at the time, developing a software called Copcast. It's a very interesting piece of software that would transform mobile phones into body-worn cameras. So um, it's kind of an app that would allow police officers back in the headquarters, not just to have the live feed, but to enable two-way communication with the police officer. There was a really interesting piece of software, and then there was a dashboard where they could see where the police officers were. So it's an integration of kind of a a body-worn camera with a a management system of the videos and, and also where, you know, the real-time kind of capture device. So they were in communication with the military police of Santa Catarina. And it's a really neat piece of software, really. So it's a, it's, it was a fantastic. So there was this conversation going on at the time. I joined uh, this conversation and, and we said, like, why, why don't we randomize and why don't we see the effects that that might have? So that spiraled into the project. Eventually, we changed the technology for kind of regular body-worn cameras because the mobile phones were not a good good hardware for the police day-to-day activities. The battery wouldn't last, it's not sturdy enough. So they had, you know, the, the best software is still there, but the hardware wasn't proper for the police operations. So that's why we eventually shifted full-on to the body-worn camera. So that's how this conversation happened. So it got, eventually got funding and we were there, you know, we we're there ready to start a lot of work i mean i'm, I'm saying that it's it's a lot more complicated than it sounds because <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> these things are always so complicated like when you're yeah. it's just the logistics of pulling something like this off yeah the logistics and a lot had to be adjusted within the police so the operating protocols that the police you know how to interact with the city it has to be adjusted so there was you know also the training had to be adjusted so there's the training department, there is all the legality around that and how to deal with the videos, what can and cannot be done. So there was the, the, you know, the, the sort of law department involved. Uh, there's, of course, the IT department that needs to handle that amount of cameras. With uh, In our case, we had 73 cameras, six docking stations, but the production of you know, lots of and lots of videos, that's not easy. And then we need to have a system in place to make sure that if we need a video, we know where it is and we can pull that video. So IT department had to get involved as well, plus the commanders of the different police units that, that implemented the project and, of course, the participating police officers. So at some point, I, it felt like I was speaking to everyone in the police <laughs> for different reasons, for different aspects of the implementation. And they were, they were very kind. I think in the end of the day, it's not just... You no know, interest in, in making sure that the research works, but also I think that they were generally interested in, in knowing the effects of the, the body-worn cameras and also using the project as a way to prepare themselves for a much larger scale intervention that followed. So it, it all came together at the right time. 
And had this organization done other, like the, the police commanders you were working with, had they done other RCTs in the past? Is that how they kind of knew going in, they would have to randomize in order to note the effects here? They've done another RCT with us on community policing. Uh, we found no effects of, of community policing. So we created community policing groups randomly across the state. It was a, 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 it was a, a design in which we advertised the community policing program. It was along with other groups. So it became also kind of a meta study on, on community policing where other groups in, in different settings around the world also found uh, no effects of, of community policing. So I think behind that, there is a huge selection story in the sense that you know, we think that community policing may work very well and the feedback is always so positive, but the selection of participants into community policing groups is not random to any extent. These are people that are much more likely to interact with the police in the first place, to have an ex-ante good perception of the police, and that's what, it, you know, in a sense, uh, drives our perception uh, that, police, that the community policing is relatively efficacious. But anyway, so the, the project, so we had done this RCT before. I think they were, their own studies had shown them that, uh, that randomizing things was, was a good way of assessing, of assessing treatment effects. And uh, so, so, yeah, so there was this kind of prior knowledge or perhaps, you know, good experiences with randomizing things. Yeah. And experience with an RCT that showed something they thought worked didn't work, which presumably helps them understand why research is important if they weren't already fully bought in. Very cool. Okay. Well, tell us more about the specific design of your experiment. So you have all this buy-in, you're able to randomize at these levels that other researchers aren't able to to randomize. So exactly how did you assign these body-worn cameras across officers and across shifts? So we selected one in three officers to assign a camera. So we selected uh, all the front-facing officers that were in, in the police units that were selected into the study. And overall, we had 453 officers. So uh, 150 were assigned to use the camera. We did one in three because we knew we have, the police officers, they combined themselves into the dispatch unit. And our goal was to compare dispatch units treated and against control, and we wanted to maximize power. So we want to have 50% or as close as possible as 50% of the dispatches that are treated. And to do so, we need to induce a sparser treatment at the officer level. Our pre-data indicated to us that it was one in three or close to one in three. So that's what we did. In addition to that, we had two in seven. So two days uh, in seven in a week were called the blackout days. The blackout days serve two purposes, so we can compare kind of within officer uh, variation. We can, for example, estimate learning effects, whether an officer that used the camera in the past behaves different, even in the absence of the camera. We find some evidence of that. And it also allows us a very clean setting that clears kind of contamination effects, because during those days, no one in the police units were using a camera at all. So we rule out any contamination, even if we were not able to directly observe, which we are, so it allows us to do uh, robustness exercises and we don't find different effects. Okay. So you've got one out of every three officers is assigned to wear a camera all the time, except these blackout days. <laughs> so all the time. And then you figured out that basically that would give you about half of all incidents where officers are showing up. You'd have at least one officer on the scene who's wearing a camera. So the incident's basically treated. And then you've got these blackout days 
where no one wears a camera for two of the seven days. And I have to say, this is the piece of the paper. Like when you get to this part of the paper, it's just like, how did they pull that off? <laughs> like that's the part of the implementation that seems the hardest to me of actually like getting everyone to remember not to wear their camera on those days. So very cool. So you've got randomization across officers and also randomization across days. Excellent. And then tell us about the data you have to measure all this. At that point, we had kind of literally WhatsApp groups that not only we had two in seven days that were the blackout days, but uh-huh. we didn't want to announce them beforehand. We wanted to announce them right. last minute to avoid any anticipation effects. So we literally had the police officers, the commanders, and in, in WhatsApp groups. So we were literally like sending messages to them, like tomorrow is a blackout day, don't know cameras. And, and so that was literally how it happened. Amazing. It just feels like there aren't that many organizations, police or otherwise, that would be able to pull something like that off. So uh, I, it's just I remarkable. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, cool. All right. Tell us about the data. So circling back to the data. So it's dispatch level data. So we observe. So dispatch for us is kind of a police unit going somewhere to do something. It can be initiated through 911 calls, or it can be self-initiated by the dispatch units that are patrolling the municipalities. It records what happens, so what type of crimes are suspected or confirmed, who was present, uh, where, how severe the call is, whether use of force was applied. Use of force can be, in theory, can be anything. Even you know, a command, a police officer commanding someone to do something can be a uh, use of force. Having said that, usually use of force that is recorded is that of you know, uh, uh, firearms being shot or non-lethal weapons being, being shot. But... In theory, anything can be classified as use of force. And the full data, we don't have that data, but the full data would have like textual transcripts of, of what happened, descriptions of what happened, photos and so on. We don't have this data for, as I said, to protect anonymity of the uh, human subjects. But our data would record what happened, when, and whether the, there was any outcome in terms of use of force, whether there was any arrest and so on. And in combination with that, we have the automated logs of the cameras. The cameras are kind of mini computers. So they have kind of a system messages of what happened, when they were turned on, when they were turned off, when they were in standby, when the video, when they were recording, when they were not, whether it was kind of, so say, low battery alerts and things like that. So that data we get. We don't get the videos themselves, but we know whether a certain camera that was being used by a certain officer in a certain place at a certain time it was on or it was off. Okay. And so there are a bunch of things you could measure here. So what are the main outcome measures you're most interested in? So we start with compliance. We find that about a quarter of the, of the dispatches are recorded, which can be consistent with the protocol for use. That's another thing that's very important here. So the protocol of use was that the camera should be turned on whenever there was an interaction with a citizen. Not all the calls have interactions. They can, for example, look for something and not find root for someone and not find, and so they can be uh, roaming and not have a meaningful interaction. So that was the first outcome. The second set of outcomes is whether what happens to the reporting margin, whether uh, police officers, they record incidents more often, how the recording changes, and whether there are, for example, more victims in the reports. And we do find evidence that they refer to investigations about 9% more often. Those reports have about 20% more victims as compared to the dispatches where there was no camera present. So tell us a little bit more about that. So this is basically just trying to figure out 
if the cameras are affecting like how diligent the officers are at doing their jobs? Is that the idea? Yeah, we think that this is improving the quality of the reporting. Importantly, uh, we find that the incidence of domestic violence grows by 67.5%. Of course, we don't think that it's the domestic violence that is increasing. We think that's the reporting of domestic violence that is increasing. That could be reported as anything else but domestic violence. So it increases by quite a substantial amount. And we think that this is just the effect of the cameras either directly providing evidence about domestic violence or indirectly through police officers being more diligent in reporting the facts as they are. And uh, this is incredibly important, I think, because otherwise it would just fall into the you know blindness of not having the right set of uh, public policy tools, not victims themselves not being able to be protected because basically the, the crimes were not being accurately reported by the police officers. And, and that's a very significant and meaningful increase as, as we see in the data. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last outcomes that you look at are the effects of these body-worn cameras on citizen officer interactions. So what do you find there? So we find that, you know, as I said, like 25% of the dispatches are recorded, but that's, that's you know, of course, compliance is not perfect, but it's also some part of that is explained by the fact that the protocol did not mandate that there was a recording in the beginning of the day and whenever there was no interactions between the citizen and the police officer. We find that compliance is higher when junior-ranked officers wear the camera and those who had no previous investigation or offenses. So that highlights to us that the camera also interacts potentially with career concerns, but at least this is consistent with career concerns of police officers in that those who have a longer future time span in the police force, they are more willing to adopt the technology and essentially turn on the camera when they need to be turned on. So uh, that's an kind of important margin of, of heterogeneity that we find here. We find that it reduced, it reduced use of force by 61% uh, comparing treated against control dispatches. This is a very significant reduction of use of force. We find that it reduces charges of contempt and disobedience, which are types of crimes that are often associated with when there is some negative interaction, and loosely speaking, negative interaction between the police officer and the citizen, they will often be recorded as as, uh, charges of contempt or disobedience and in a way to justify use of force by the police side. And we also find that there is a reduction in, in handcuffs and arrests. We combine the whole thing in a formerly uh, negative interaction index when any of those things happened. And we find that the negative interaction index uh, is reduced by 44%, which is, again, a, a meaningful uh, reduction of negative interactions between officers and, and citizens. And remind us again, what is included in that use of force category? It's uh, use of weapons. Let it, it can be lethal or non-lethal weapons, mm-hmm. but it's one of the two. Okay, great. Yeah, those are big effects. <laughs> big effects mm-hmm. and very different from those null results we were talking about earlier in the other studies. So you talked a little bit about how these effects vary with who's wearing the camera. Is there any other variation across different types of incidents or other other dimensions of heterogeneity that were worth mentioning? Yes, one important margin is uh, along the severity of the incident. And to be quite frank, we expected the body one cameras to affect you know, incidents that they were more violent in a way. 
And we found the opposite. So we found that incidents that are exempted classified is important because before attending a call, the police classifies the severity of the incident. And it's important that it's before because the severity of the incident is not itself contaminated by the presence of the camera. But it classifies it as low risk or high risk. They do so by assessing four questions regarding whether the perpetrator is at the scene, whether they have arms or they don't, and, and, and some kind of basic questions to elicit uh, the sort of the propensity for violence. And we find that the effects are concentrated along the low risk. So the interpretation here is that the camera, instead of just de-escalating a situation that's already dangerous and that there is already the use of force, what it does, it's actually preventing the escalation of the violence and preventing that use of force becomes necessary in the first place. So it's not about that, you know, incursion and, and you know, and a, a drug dealer that's already going to be violent and that's already going to result in an arrest. Having a camera is not going to affect the use of force in that setting. It's already going to, you know, some way or another, unfortunately, but there, there's always, there, there will be the use of force anyways. The margin that a camera works is by preventing that otherwise, quote-unquote, simple uh, incidents turn out to be violent ones, like a traffic crash or domestic incident as well. So whether in that sense, uh, in, in that sense, the camera will prevent it from being an incident that becomes violent as opposed to turning an incident that is violent into something that is not. Okay. And then you also make use of those blackout days to see whether there were learning effects. So what do you have in mind there and what do you find? Um, If the cameras work, I would expect that there is some sort of internalizing of the effects by the police officers, meaning that by the time that, you know, create this awareness that there is someone recording and someone observing your interaction, it's possible that that sort of internalization of the consequences of your, your own action will still linger, even if, even if you're not wearing the camera for some point in time. Uh, we do find some evidence of that. We do find evidence that the reporting effects, even for police officers who are not wearing a camera, if they had used it in the past. So what I mean is that in blackout days, treated police officers, they will still have a very similar reporting effect as compared to the treatment to the control group in also blackout days, as if they were wearing the cameras, uh, which we associate to a learning effect, learning about using the camera and kind of internalizing that camera eye that sits with you, even though the camera is not there. Yeah, it's almost like you kind of get in the habit of like writing down these details or having these conversations or whatever it was that led them to record more of the victims or more of the domestic violence incidents that you've been talking about before but you don't find the same effects on use of force. Was that right? That's correct. So we don't find the same effect on use of force. It's possible that you, know, you get into a habit of, for example, uh, collecting data, gathering the evidence from the field, uh, figuring out that perhaps it's not that much more costly to report in, in, in the, the correct way, and that has benefits for the victims. So that kind of lingers on. So that's kind of a more in a sense, more subtle change of behavior as opposed to use of force. You know, use of force might be, uh, might depend on also the, the whole dispatch unit observing, rather observing that the camera is present as opposed to some internal element and internalizing that that particular police officer has used in the past, which is not observable to the rest of the dispatch group. So it could be that is operating 
from that perspective. And in that case, it would be in a way understandable if it changes one margin of reporting that depends on a single police officer as opposed to use of force, which depends on the whole composition of the dispatch group. Yeah, or the citizens, right? Or the citizens they're interacting with. Of course, yes, yes, very good. Yeah. Point. Yes, the so I'm, I'm going beyond the research. I'm just trying to interpret what that result goes. But in fact, it's very difficult to say. Yeah, but it is really interesting, I think, because there's this, you know, to the extent that it's the fact that you're being watched and there are potential consequences for misbehaving or for bad behavior, then you would expect you'd need to be wearing the camera all the time to get those kinds of effects. And so that seems to be the case maybe with use of force, but not with the like recording effects of like actually writing down in a more comprehensive way what happened. But yeah, then there's, it did make me think about like, this could be the place where the citizen police interaction is really relevant because of course the citizens were not treated before, even though the officers were, but super interesting to try to think through that. Yeah, sure. I think to get to the bottom of that question, so uh, we could think about other designs, for example, implementing a randomization that's visible to the citizens so we can get to that side of the interaction as well, irrespective of the recording. So there are other designs that could speak to disentangle those effects and and those those mechanisms. I think, you know, there is quite a bit of potential interesting mechanisms to decompose, and I think you allude to one of them. Yes, for sure. Yeah, very cool. And then finally in the paper, you spend some time comparing your findings with all those previous null results from the earlier RCTs in the US and UK. And we've already discussed a bit. You argue that the unit of randomization in those earlier studies may have biased their estimates towards zero. So tell us a little bit more about what you do here and kind of what the punchline is in terms of how in your you and your co-authors are interpreting the differences across these studies. Sure. So there are two main differences between our, our design, our research, and the previous research. One is the context. The second one is the design, the research design itself. By design, I mean the unit of randomization, the unit of data, and so on. Exante, we didn't have a clear view on whether it was one or the other. But what our analysis suggests is that the design makes a very big difference in what we estimate as the treatment effects. This is not to say that I'm not ruling out that context is important. I'm just saying that we can very confidently say that the research design is important. We do so because we can map the research design, we can implement the previous research designs in our own data, and either by looking at some aspect of the randomization, for example, just across officers, or by collapsing the data to more aggregate data, for example, collapsing at the officer level or the day level, or the shift level, that is something that we can do. So in that way, we can mimic the research design that has been used in the literature. And when we do so, we find very similar results than the previous literature does. By very similar, I mean, it's within the same ballpark, it's within the same, in the confidence intervals. So we could have gotten the similar result had we implemented those designs also, also in Santa Catarina. So this speaks to the importance of the research design. It's possible that the context also matters, but we don't, don't have a way of, of, of mapping what would have happened with the research, with the, the, with the treatment effects in the other designs had it been done in a different way, of course. So in a way, in a way, we spoke a little bit about why we think that happens, but one of the issues that is very important here is the issue of contamination. Again, the comparison between the treated and control, finding the appropriate control group that is not affected by the camera usage is, is, is very, very important. 
Another issue here is the unit of the data that we use. It's very granular, allows us to introduce a number of fixed effects. We have just the sheer size of observation is, is much larger. And it's really where we would expect the interaction to unfold. So I think it's the kind of the two things coming together, a research design that is finer, that controls for spillover effects, for contamination effects in various ways and forms that that could take place. That is allowed by a granular data design. That's what allows us to kind of put us uh, apart from the literature. I would stake my bets on that. So more than even more than the context, that really what really matters here is the research design. And that that's what puts the difference between our treatment effects. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we now get a bunch of RCTs in the US and UK, again, that just give cameras to fewer officers, essentially, to kind of get closer to what you guys were doing. Your design is a really nice model, I think, for what we would like these kind of RCTs to look like going forward. Okay, so what are the policy implications of the the results from your paper and the other work in this area? What should policymakers and practitioners be taking away from all this? Our research shows that cameras can work to reduce police use of force and improve reporting, uh, reduce lethality, improve potentially improve relations with society, and also to protect officers from uh, abuse themselves. So nowadays, if you were like the cost reduced a lot of these cameras and it continues to to decrease and the technology to improve. So even if the cost benefit was largely given the effect sizes, it was largely favorable in our original implementation. Nowadays, the, the scales have tipped even further in favor of camera use. But I would highlight here that cameras, you know, again, again, cameras don't monitor anyone. It's just like institutional settings and the set of incentives and, and, and that the police forces have that will make a difference with whether cameras will have an effect or they don't. So whether the videos are analyzed, whether the videos are are checked and whether they are accessible by the criminal justice system and internal investigation. These are all crucial factors in creating a reasonable expectation by the police officers that the videos will be seen, that actions will have consequences. And so these all these actors within the police and outside of the police, they, they substantially matter. So in a sense, it's not a blind implementation of cameras, but also an implementation of cameras where all these institutional elements have to be taken into account and have to be thought such that the cameras have similar effects. And then how did the officials in Santa Catarina specifically react to these results? Very positively, I think. So the, the paper made the press there. So that also triggered other the interest from other police of, uh, forces in Brazil who also adopted uh, cameras. Uh, they were pleased that the large-scale implementation is has kind of a, a scientific grounding to it, and that was, I think, quite positive in the in the end of the day. So, yeah, the reception was was very was very good. So, are there any other papers related to this topic, body-worn cameras, or something similar <laughs> that have come out since you all first started working on this this study? Many other, yeah, other papers, specifically in Brazil, for example, there were teams studying the effect of body-worn cameras in Sao Paulo, which is a very large police force. Initial results are very promising. They uh, show that lethality falls very much in line with the estimates that we have in our paper. There's a recent paper also uh, looking at the uh, experience in implementing body cameras in Rio. They document a number of a number of effects, but the compliance there was was uh, tricky. <laughs> but real police forces is, is, is 
let's say it's a bit more difficult to manage. (laughs) (laughs) And so the newest kind of wave of research is coming along with treatment effect sizes that are consistent with others in, in different settings. Very interesting. And are they all using a similar kind of implementation as your design? They have similar with differences. Uh, some of them are not randomized. They're just observational with the robustness that observational data and, and you know, pre-trends and with validating sure. pre-trends and the whole thing, which is great. And, and it's, a, it's, it's very solid evidence as well. Interesting. Yeah. And that is, a, of course, a different way to kind of deal with these spillover effects. We love RCTs, but like sometimes if these interventions, if you'd expect that treating, you know, a subset of officers is going to have like community-wide effects, sometimes an RCT within that community is just not going to work. Like there's just no way to deal with those spillovers. And so looking at using more like observational data across places could be really useful. It's super revealing and super robust as well. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, as you said, like certain questions cannot be answered by or it can be very difficult to answer. Right, right. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, and so what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others are going to be thinking about going forward? I think there are a number of a number of, uh, of questions and open questions. Um, one which I alluded to before is the institutional setting. So uh, what are the right set of incentives and monitoring of the camera itself that moderate the camera use? Now, that is a little bit unknown. So we can think about as various police forces in the world implement. So I hope we can get better data about the, the types of implementations and monitoring that the police forces themselves implement. So we can get an answer to that question. Uh, the second, I think, area that would be interesting to clarify is given that kind of violence is an equilibrium outcome, it can be officer side or citizen side. I suspect that both are relevant. I'm, I'm sure that police's excessive use of force is at place here, but I'm, I'm sure that there is some relevance also to the, the other side. It would be very interesting to be able to distinguish between one side and the other side of the outcome, right? So if we could randomize, for example, whether citizens know that they are being recorded as opposed to the, the officers knowing that they are recorded, what the officers say about to the citizens about them being recorded, in Santa Catarina, they were actually saying, always saying that they were being recorded. And that by itself, it's a compliance device, right? If we could make progress in disentangling these two sides, I think it would be, uh, be important and, and very interesting. Also, the effects about preventing the, the escalation uh, kind of shows that there is something you know, a bit more complex than the headline explanation. So about about the situational dynamics of how the dispatch unfolds than just the, you know, the average of the, the comparison between treated and control. And finally, I think one area of research that could be very interesting to look at, it's about the perceptions about the police. So we cannot get, that's perhaps one area where randomization would be difficult to conduct, but whether the citizens, they change their perceptions of the police because of the accountability and the monitoring that the uh, camera allows, we cannot get to that question by just randomizing at the levels that we, we are randomizing. We need a, an implementation that's consistent over space and time in a way that uh, the citizens can notice that, that there is, a, there is a, a, a consistent and not permanent, a strong indication that interactions will be always recorded. So it's a kind of this continuum of over and over and interactions and interactions that come with recording that perhaps can change 
citizen perception of the police. And that can only, be, I think, be achieved by providing kind of geographical variation in the camera use and, and over time as well. Uh, perhaps observational studies can do uh, more about this. But it also it's also a data collection challenge because one wouldn't gather that from admin data. We need to be able to kind of survey individuals to get to that question. So I think these are, these are kind of the three main areas in which the research frontier could explore in the future. I would add to that, sorry, before I forget, the effect on the criminal justice system, I think it's also quite important. Some recent research has shown some effects along that direction, but there is a lot more to be done along that to showcase how the videos are used and whether it affects conviction rates and to some extent follow up on our reporting effects, right? So if the police officer are not reporting what happens on the ground with a lot of detail and accuracy, we cannot expect that incident to become a criminal justice and picked up by the criminal justice system. But uh, conditional on them being accurately reported, what we don't know is what happens yet with when it exhausts kind of the police boundaries and goes to the justice system. So that would be very interesting. Again, we need more time to be able to answer that question. But this is a kind of a series of outcomes that would be very interesting to follow up as we gather more evidence across police departments and, and as there is more time after the cameras have been implemented, not just in Santa Catarina, but in other police forces in Brazil and worldwide. Yeah. On that last point, I will plug Katie Bowman, who's a job market candidate this year, has a neat paper. Her job market paper is basically looking at what happens to the court cases and how how cases proceed through the through prosecution and so on if there's body-worn camera footage available. And the results are sort of mixed. <laughs> it's complicated, exactly. it turns out. So yeah, I think definitely a lot more interesting questions here to answer exactly. that are all suddenly much more interesting now that we have a sense that cameras work. Uh, they were less interesting when we thought they didn't work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Read the job market paper. It's very interesting. Excellent. All right. My guest today has been Pedro Souza from Queen Mary University of London. Pedro, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for the space. And it's been a pleasure. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit, so all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheikh. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks. 